And now hear God's holy word from Ephesians chapter 6 as we conclude our study today in Paul's letter to the Ephesian church. Last week we ended right in the middle of a sentence, so I'm going to pick up at the beginning of the sentence and read through the end of chapter 6. Hear now God's holy word. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. And for me, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. But that you also may know my affairs and how I am doing, Tychicus, a beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will make all things known to you, whom I have sent to you for this very purpose, that you may know our affairs and that he may comfort your hearts." Peace to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father, we praise you that we have spent these many weeks in the um, letter that your servant Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus. And now as we conclude this, we pray that Uh, you would continue to knead these truths into our hearts, that you would continue to work them into us. By your Holy Spirit, cause us to continually meditate upon them. And as we just read, that we would be praying continually, that these things would be a constant communication between ourselves and you. Uh, by, By the blood of Jesus, by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, that you would continue to hear us and, and fix what is ailing in us and in the world. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you've ever seen the movie Field of Dreams, you're familiar with the story of Moonlight Graham. And there's a little bit more to his story than was, uh, was revealed in the, in the movie or the book. Maybe you've read the book. The book was fine as well. The movie was, was great. So it's probably one of those movies that you feel much more nostalgic about than actually was a great was a great film. But it was it was good. It was just it was just fine. But Moonlight Graham, who features into that film, he was both a baseball player and he was a medical doctor. He was born in Fayetteville, North Carolina. I, I didn't I didn't know that until I studied more about his uh, his life. He was born in 1876. He went to UNC where he played college baseball uh, before he. Uh, got recruited and and played in the Carolina Leagues for several years. Carolina League, minor league baseball, bouncing around from town to town in North Carolina for several years until 1905 at the age of 29, which even for back then was kind of past your, you're kind of past your prime. You're, you're, if you, if you haven't made it to the major leagues by, you know, 29, you're, you're, um, you're kind of late. But in 1905, at the age of 29, his contract was bought by the Major League New York Giants, but they sent him to one of their minor league teams until he got a call up to join the Major League New York Giants on May 23rd of 1905, finally fulfilling his lifelong dream to play Major League Baseball, professional baseball. But he was called up in May, and for a month from the date of his call up in late May, Uh, until late June. Every day, he would show up at the ballpark. He would dress in full uniform. Every day, he would take batting practice. Every day, he'd go out to the outfield and he'd take pop-ups and grounders and throw and catch. Every day, he would go back to the clubhouse to check the lineup card, and his name was not on it. His name was not on the lineup card for the rest of May 
and all of June, every day he shows up to the ballpark. Every day he is this close, just a, a whisker away from fulfilling his dream of, of being able to play in the, in the major leagues, major league baseball. And every day he sits down on the bench and he waits for the manager to call on him to pinch hit or to go in and substitute for another player. After more than a month, on June 29th, that day finally came. At the end of the eighth inning, the manager called on him to make a substitution for the, for the right fielder. And there was a possibility that he would get to bat at the top of the ninth inning. Though there was one out, two out. Now with two outs, uh, Moonlight Graham is standing on deck waiting to bat next and the batter in front of him popped out for the third and final out of the inning, stranding Moonlight Graham on, on deck with a bat in his hand. And then at the bottom of the ninth, he was sent out to right, right field, uh, but no ball was hit in his direction through the rest of the ninth inning, and thus the game was over. And then, then the next day, Moonlight Graham was sent back down to the minor leagues and never got called back up again. His entire, his entire life, was, was in this moment of playing a half an inning of Major League Baseball. Uh, of course, he, he spent a few more years in the, in the minor leagues. He left baseball. He finished his medical degree, and he settled down to practice medicine in a small town in Minnesota and died uh, at the age of 88 in 1965, having, having served families and, and worked as a small-town doctor for the rest of his life. But there's something achingly tragic when you hear that story, at least for me. It, there's, there's something achingly tragic of thinking about getting that close to your dream, so close to doing what you want to do so badly that you can taste it, and then you only get a little whiff of it, just a tiny taste of it before it leaves you forever, and you never get another chance to do it. You never get another chance to, uh, to get that close again. The idea that you could show up every day, that you could do your job every day, you could dress every day in the uniform of the thing that you want to do and never really get to step into the batter's box. Never get a chance to show what you're worth and what you're made of. Let it show them what you can do, leaving you all dressed up and nowhere to go. Leaving you dressed up in the, in the uniform of a baseball player and you have nowhere to play. Well, last week in our study of Ephesians, we saw how the Apostle Paul lays out our uniform for us. He lays out what our battle gear is, what our battle dress is. But that uniform, of course, isn't just a, a fashion statement. Uh, we, we're not just playing dress up. We don't put on the helmet of salvation and the breastplate of righteousness. We don't gird ourselves with truth uh, just to, you know, just in case we need it, in case we get called up, in case the manager calls on us. We are not dressed up with nowhere to go. Taking up that armor is the first step to stepping out on to the battlefield so that none of us are left on the sidelines. None of us sit on the bench. None of us are left behind. We are all given armor. We are all given the uniform so that we can fight. Now, last time when we walked through the battle gear of the Christian, I pointed out the similarities between the uniform that we're given uh, in, in Ephesians 6 and the uniform of the priest under the Old Covenant. So that when we walk through and we read about these various in items, this, this inventory, uh, that Paul gives us, we're, we're not thinking about a Roman soldier. You know, we're not thinking about a Roman centurion, you know, with the helmet, with the fuzzy thing. And does anybody ever know what, the, what was that actually for? I'm sure my wife could tell me what that fuzzy thing was for. Uh, 
as she studied this stuff, this Roman culture more than I have. But, but that's not the picture that we're supposed to have in mind. We're not supposed to think about a centurion. We're supposed to think about the, the priests who served at the sanctuary. Remember we read in Isaiah also that God has a breastplate of righteousness. God wears salvation as a helmet. So he gives to his soldiers, God gives his soldiers the same armor that he wears. And specifically, he gives to his priests these vestments that reflect his own armor so that they could serve before Israel. And all of Israel would know, yeah, 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 we are soldiers. We are a kingdom. We are a nation of priests. The priests and Levites who minister before God in the sanctuary had a number of duties but all of their duties fall under the heading of holy warfare. Everything that they were doing at the sanctuary was holy warfare. This continual killing of animals and sacrificing them uh, in worship was an act of daily warfare against sin. They were also leading Israel in prayers and psalms and supplication. This is their warfare, of all, uh, warfare against all manner of threats and enemies that surrounded them. This is how God prescribed for them to fight. He gives them a uniform and then he gives them a strategy. And he says, this is how I want you to fight your battles against your enemies. This is how I want you to come before me and ask for what you want me to do. We've got sacrifices, we've got prayers, we've got Psalms. Remember that it was the priest and we talked about this last week, but I don't want you to forget this image. I want you to keep this in your mind. It was the priests who led Israel out, surrounding the Ark of the Covenant, led Israel in their march through the wilderness. It was, it was the priests who led in battle against their enemies, who led across the Jordan River, who led around the city of Jericho. The priests led Israel into warfare because their fight was uh, just as real as the guys holding the spears and the shields. There's also this thing, you've, you've studied the Nazarite vow, right, in various sections of, of Scripture. If someone took a, a Nazarite vow, that made them effectively a temporary priest for the purpose of conducting holy warfare. You see this concept of priesthood and warfare so closely connected that anyone could take a vow, a Nazarite vow, that would, that would set them aside for a time as a holy warrior. But they were also a priest. They didn't let their hair, uh, they didn't cut their hair, they didn't drink wine. Why don't they drink wine? It's because a priest doesn't drink wine uh, while he's performing his duties. You don't drink wine until your work is over with. So Samson or Samuel or John the Baptist, Elijah, Elisha, even Paul himself took, took a vow because they were like priests and priests are ordained to fight. So, so when you think priest, don't think of, you know, a weird holy guy who does weird things at the sanctuary. Think warrior. Think soldier. Priests are commissioned to fight holy warfare. They're given armor. And the New Testament we read, what do we read? We're all priests, right? Now we get to the New Testament and we're all priests in an in a, in a elevated way, even in a more real way. And Paul says, okay, priests, you have armor now. You have this armor. And that means child of God, Brothers and sisters, it's up to you and me to put on that armor and step out onto the battlefield and take up that spiritual holy warfare. You are a soldier, as my little girl used to sing. We've got a video, this precious video of her singing, I'm in the Lord's army, and she's just screaming it and singing it as loud as she can. I'm in the Lord's army. Do you all remember that? Do we need to sing it? Do we need to sing that song right now? You're in the Lord's army. And, and what does that mean? What does that mean to fight this spiritual holy warfare? Does it mean to go pick fights on the internet and, you know, say, leave comments on Facebook? Is that what holy warfare is? 
No, Paul tells us that our fight isn't against flesh and blood sons of Adam. Our warfare, as we read last week, is, is against the powers that deceive them, the powers that entrap and enslave men and women, the wicked, cunning, demonic powers that rule over them. So if those are our enemies, where is our arena of warfare? How do we fight them? We're all dressed up, but, but where do we go with this armor? How do we fight? Well, we are fitted out in this battle gear primarily for prayer, principally for prayer. And this is why he, I ended right in the middle of a sentence, but, but it's, it, it continues from verse 17 to 18, where Paul says in 17, take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the, sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. In English, we have a semicolon, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. So we're dressed up in this battle gear in this priestly holy warrior outfit to do what? To pray. That's where the battlefield is. That's where we go with this armor. This equipping is equipping for the fight and the fight begins in prayer. Now, surely this equipping is for all of life. We need this equipping to be good fathers and mothers, good husbands and wives, good neighbors, good workers, good citizens, all of this. This equipping is for all of life. We need faith and righteousness and salvation and truth and God's word for all of life. But all of life is also to be saturated with prayer, which is why he begins with, by saying praying always, praying always. Always. It's not that we just have specific time set aside for prayer. We do and we should have special time set aside for prayer. But prayer is also a constant activity for the mature believer. As, as we grow in grace, we see prayer as less and less of a thing that we can only do at certain set times. And I hope you pray more than just on Sunday morning in worship. I hope you pray at meals, but I hope you pray more than just at meals. I, I hope that you're praying throughout the entire day, that, that you learn to pray like you breathe. You don't have to tell yourself to breathe, do you? I hope you don't. I hope you, that's not a conscious thing, right? You're just breathing right now. Now, I just made you conscious of it. Now you're thinking about breathing. You weren't before. But your body just breathes. And we want to get to the point where we're praying like we're breathing. We, we don't have to remind yourself to, to train ourselves to the point where we're praying all the time, where it comes as natural as breathing. Your prayer is a constant, continual conversation with God. You are talking to God throughout the day. And sometimes that takes the form of a whisper. Oh, Lord, please, please heal my mother. Oh, Lord, please, Father, please heal my mother. Or, or you say it a little bit louder, Lord, what are you doing? <laughs> I can't tell what you're doing here, Lord, and it's confusing me, and I can't figure this out, and I don't know what to do. You've got to show me what to do, Lord. You've got to give me your wisdom. Sometimes you holler. I holler in the car. People driving around me, I hope they think I'm talking on the phone or else they think I'm crazy. But sometimes you holler, Lord, what are you doing? Lord, change me. Lord, Lord, fix this. We holler. Sometimes you're praying and it's just your thoughts. Now, now I'm not detracting from the idea that you ought to be praying out loud. It's, it's good to pray out loud, but don't ever, don't ever think, oh, if I pray internally, God doesn't hear me. Does, does God know your thoughts? Well, what, what does Psalm 139 say? I'm going to flip over there real quick. Psalm 139 says this. 
The psalmist says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down. You are acquainted with all my ways, for there is not a word on my tongue. But behold, O Yahweh, you know it all together. And at the end of the psalm, he says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties and see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Because does God know your thoughts? Does God know what you're thinking? Does God know what you're worried about? Does God know what's in your mind and on your heart? You bet he does. And so much of your prayer is just thinking and addressing your thoughts to God. God knows your thoughts. And so when you move throughout the day, praying always is what, what uh, the scripture says. So when you move throughout your day, you're praying for people and your situations and everything you see can prompt thanksgiving or petition. You, you find yourself doing it almost you know, just like second nature. I, I flip on a light and say, thank you, Lord. I turn on the water and I say, oh, thank you. We got water. Ain't that amazing? We got clean water. Thank you, Lord. I start the car. If you've, if you've driven junkers like I have over the years, you, start, you develop a very keen prayer life around turning the uh, ignition uh, and, and that starting like, oh, thank you, Lord. Thank you. It started. And you get to where you're going and say, thank you. But you know, I, I'm being a little bit goofy about it, but, but it really is. You, you, you're, think, you're thanking all the time. Everything is thanksgiving. You're praying for people and situations. Everything you see, you pray for. You pray. You watch the news. What do you do? Oh, Lord, please help that situation. Lord, God, do something. Lord, fix that. When you hear a siren, when you hear a, a fire truck or an ambulance, oh, Lord, have mercy. I don't know what's going on with those folks, and I don't know what disaster is impending there, but Lord, help them. Lord, be merciful. When you pass a hospital, Lord, there's people in there suffering. Lord, ease their pain. When you get off the phone with a friend, pray for them. When you worry, pray. When you wake up, pray. When you wake up in the middle of the night, pray. When you go to bed, pray. Pray for your children. Pray for your spouse. Pray for me. Pray for each other. Pray like you breathe. Pray to the point that to not pray would be just as painful and uncomfortable and require just as much, much thought as it would to not breathe, right? You have to consciously not breathe. You have to think about it, right? You gotta hold it. If you hold it for very long, it becomes very uncomfortable. You wanna be praying like that to where to stop praying, you gotta think about not praying. Notice all these alls that, that he gives us here. He says, we're to pray always. Now, I just talked about that, both in regular times and continual prayer. We pray with others and we pray by ourselves. Pray always with all prayer and supplication. Prayer takes a lot of different forms. I mean, I can pray my extemporaneous thoughts. Sometimes I run out of words in prayer and I need to open up the Psalms and I need to pray through the Psalms. Or I'll sing a hymn in prayer to God, or I'll open up a prayer book. They're good, you know, the book of, uh, of common worship, uh, the old, uh, old Reformed Presbyterian prayer book is good, good stuff, good prayers in there, and I'll pray through that. Prayer takes a lot of forms. He says, use all prayer and all supplication. Use all the resources available to you, making supplication for all the saints. Who are we to pray for? The sick ones and the ones that ain't sick. The rich ones and the poor ones, the powerful ones and the ones with no status. Pray for all the saints. We're, we're very prone to be, and I'm, I'm confessing this myself, I'm prone to, to pray for uh, prayers and things that just concern me and my life and, and my family. 
praying for my struggles and my needs, but we're commanded to pray for other people in the struggles that they are fighting, that y'all are fighting as well. You all have the armor of God on you and you are fighting your own spiritual battles. And I'm called to come alongside with you and pray with you in your fight, in your battle. So, so we pray for others and we pray for others. And we, you know, I, we've, we build our, our prayer list and, and that's good. That's fine. It's good to pray for broken legs and upcoming surgeries. And it's good, good to pray for sickness and, and these physical needs. That's, that's just fine. We really do need to, to do that. But, but what temptations are you facing? What, what spiritual enemies are you battling? What, what warfare are you waging in your life? What is making you anxious? Because for me to be able to pray for you in those things, you have to speak up and let me know what they are. And I know you don't want to speak up and let me know what you're struggling with. I know you don't want to tell me what you're tempted with because you think that I'll paint you a certain way and not, not respect you or not think that you're really sincere as a Christian or whatever. You see, there's no stigma in saying, I got a broken leg. Can you pray for my broken leg? I mean, unless I was doing something really dumb when I broke my leg, you know, really ordinarily, pray, pray for me to heal, pray for the surgery I got coming up. There's no, there's no stigma. It's easy to ask prayer for these physical things. It's harder to ask for prayer for things that are on a deeper spiritual level. But if I'm to pray for you and y'all are to pray for each other, you need to be communicating and you need to be talking to each other. You need to be sharing what, what is going on with you so that we can come alongside of you and help you. Pray for all the saints, he says. Pray for all the saints. Now listen to all these alls. Pray for all the saints. Pray always with all prayers, with all perseverance for all the saints. Now, now most of the times we pray sometimes with some prayers, with some perseverance for some of God's people. And he says, pray always with all prayers and all perseverance for all the saints. We pray sometimes for some people in some ways. And we find ourselves weak and ineffective and frustrated and powerless and despondent and depressed. And why is that? Why does it seem that, that nothing comes together and nothing happens? Why, 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 why is this? Does it have anything to do with our very weak, anemic attitude toward prayer? Do we say, oh yeah, man, I got the breastplate of righteousness. I got the shield of faith. I got the helmet of salvation. I got the sword of the spirit. You know, I'm girded with truth. But, but what are you doing? Where are you going with all that? What's going on with it? Are you, are you using it? I'm going to use one more. I, you know, I don't always use sports illustrations. I'm just going to use one more. When, uh, when Tom Landry, the great Tom Landry, was coach of the Dallas Cowboys, there was one particular game where the team got spanked really, really bad. The Cowboys got absolutely embarrassed on the field. And when the players went back into the, the locker room, they were waiting for Coach Landry to come back in and address them. And they were all knowing, look, we're going to get torn apart and we deserve it. We are, we are, he's going to rip us to pieces and we deserve it. But, you know, Tom Landry, very gentlemanly man, if, if you remember him, he walks in and he says, gentlemen, I told you how to win the game. You didn't do what I told you, and you lost. And he turned around and left. That was it. He didn't, he didn't raise his voice. He didn't scream. He said, I told you how to win. You didn't do it, and you lost. Here's your game plan. Play, pray, pray always with all prayers, with all perseverance for all the saints. Do it. Do what he says. And Paul adds to that that we make all of our prayer and supplication in the Spirit. 
What does this mean to pray in the Spirit? This is the prayer that the Spirit empowers. This is the prayer that the Spirit makes intelligible to the Father when we don't know what to pray. Romans 8 is so comforting to me because there are times when I'm praying for you and things that you're facing, and I don't know what to pray. I'll just be real honest. I don't know what to say. And so what I end up saying is, Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. That's all. I just say, Lord, have mercy. And I name you and I pray for you over and over. I say, Lord, have mercy. Romans 8 is so comforting. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. The Spirit takes our prayer up to the ears of the Father and covers them in the blood of Jesus and translates them to the Father and the Father hears them. He perfects our prayer. See, that's spiritual prayer. This, this is the kind of prayer that begins and ends in a desire to align our will with the will of the Father. It's the kind of prayer that begins and ends with a desire to align our words with the Spirit's words, the Psalms and, and the Scriptures. The, the kind of prayer that desires to be discipled and shaped into loving what God's Spirit loves. Spiritual prayer is prayer that changes us in the process of asking God to change the world and in changing the situation for other people. It's it's not the kind of prayer, spiritual prayer and prayer in the spirit, it's not the kind of prayer that that treats, you know, God like a a magic genie. You know, like, you know, what are your three wishes today? Well, here's what I wish for and, and it's just kind of mechanical and it's automatic. It's not the kind of prayer that tempts God or bargains with God. God, if, if you would just do this for me, I tell you what, I'd do all this. Lord, if you just, you know, I'm going to scratch this ticket and I'm going to get this money. Lord, if you would just make them numbers line up, I'd tell you what I'd do with it. I'd give, I'd give all, I'd get half, I'd give like 25% to missions. I promise, Lord, I, you know, if you just do this for me, I'll, uh, I'll do this for you. That's not, that's not the kind of prayer. Praying in the Spirit is praying in such a way that we're conformed to the Spirit of God, that we want what He wants, and that what He says is good for us, we nod our heads and we say, yeah, that's good for us. Well, Paul moves from there to making a specific prayer request. Now, he said, we're going we're to pray always, and then he, he capitalizes on this opportunity. In verse 19, he, he gives them a specific thing he wants them to pray for. Pray, he says, and pray for me that utterance may give, be given to me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. As I've pointed out many times, Paul, at this point when he's writing this letter, he's under house arrest in Rome. He's been very used to teaching large groups of people, engaging with people who want to debate philosophy and talk about what God expects and talking at the synagogues and talking with the Greek philosophers. But now now he's under house arrest in Rome. Where are his opportunities now to preach the gospel and to teach? Where is his battlefield that after he prays, he gets to step out a little bit further and he gets to teach and interact with people? Where does he get to fight? Well, there are Roman soldiers who are coming and going with the changing of the guard and he can talk to them. There's a few Christians from the local churches that might visit. In Acts 28, Luke tells us that that he had visitors from the local synagogues, and he spent considerable time teaching them, but that wouldn't have been every day. So Luke tells us that he could receive visitors at any time, yet without his liberty, without the opportunity to go where he wants to go, he has to sit there and he has to wait for work to come to him. 
So he begs them in Ephesus. He says, pray for me so that I would have opportunities, that God would send me people that I can share the gospel with and that when I get that opportunity, that I would speak boldly, that I would have great courage. Now, we might think, knowing as much as we do about the Apostle Paul, we might think, you know what? He didn't really have a problem being bold, did he? Did he have a problem with courage? But here he says it. He says, unless y'all are praying for me, my courage is surely going to fail me. If you aren't suiting up and fighting this battle with me in prayer, I'm not going to be able to keep speaking and writing. And if you aren't praying, it wouldn't matter if I were to keep it going. It wouldn't bear any fruit. None of this, he says, is going to be very effective without your help in prayer. Now, this might sound a little odd and quirky to us, this whole thing. Even though we talk about it all the time, you know, we say this kind of stuff. We say, oh, well, I'll be praying for you. Yeah. I'll pray for you. We say, yeah, please pray for me. And, and usually we preface a little story we want to share or a little something we want to talk about. Pray for, pray for you know, Aunt, Aunt Matilda. You know, da-da-da-da-da. We say, we say a little story. We tell, her, tell everybody what she's facing. And it's just a kind of a way to tell what, what we're thinking about. Um, but it can all come off kind of flimsy. I don't, I, don't, I don't know that we're always taking it seriously when we talk this way. Like, like whenever there's a tragedy... Everybody tweets and everybody texts, you know, thoughts and prayers, thoughts and prayers, thoughts and prayers. Now, I don't get the thoughts part. I don't understand what that's supposed to do. Like I'm sending mental waves of energy, you know, toward the tragedy. And I'm not sure we're really serious about the prayer part. I mean, did you really stop and approach God in prayer before you, you know, thoughts and prayers? Did you really do that? Did you stop and pray? Did you drop everything you're doing? And did you say, Lord, please be merciful. Please be merciful to these people before you type thoughts and prayers. Well, maybe you did, and I, I trust you if you say you did. But you see, we, we just, this, this is all just kind of a game. It's all just kind of a joke to us. It's all just kind of a manner of speaking, and I don't think we take it seriously. If the whole realm of prayer and the duty of prayer isn't real to us, and if confidence in the discipline of prayer isn't part of us, it's because I'm not sure we've really grasped what we're doing. What, what is prayer? What, what is all this about? It's this. God has invited his priests into his holy sanctuary to meet with him and to bring before him the needs of the world. And God calls us, his priests, into his presence and he says, okay, what do you want? What, what can I do for you? Who needs healing? What needs fixing? What needs changing and transformation? How do you want me to, how do you want me to work things? In Amos, God says, I don't do anything without consulting my prophets. And then in Amos, he actually consults with Amos just to prove his point. He says, you know, I'm going to do this. And Amos says, no, we can't take it. And Lord says, well, I'm going to do this. And Amos says, oh, we can't take that either. And God responds to Amos. You remember the way that uh, God consulted with Abraham before he, he brought judgment to Sodom and Gomorrah. Here's the thing. God has set up the world to work in such a way that he has called to himself a people from the world who live and breathe in the world. And he has determined, God has determined that he is going to listen to them. And before he acts, he's going to take into account their feelings, their wants, their desires, their struggles, and he is going to act based on what they ask for. So here is Paul, called by God, gifted by God, filled with the Holy Spirit, commissioned by God to be the, the apostle to the Gentiles. And you think, okay, he's set, he's fine. Everything he touches is going to turn to gold. God's going to give him everything he wants, right? What does he need prayer for? Yet... 
he's asking God's people to pray for him. And he's asking God's people to pray for him, not that he would be more comfortable, not that he would be released from prison, but he asked them to pray for him so he might use his gifts more effectively and have the opportunity and the boldness to preach the gospel. He says, folks, friends, brothers and sisters, I can't do this without you. I cannot do it alone. I need you fighting alongside of me. This interdependence and this connectedness comes in the way he signs off in his letter. Verse 21, but that you also may know my affairs and know how I am doing. Tychicus, a beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will make all things known to you, whom I have sent to you for this very purpose, that you may know our affairs, that he may comfort your hearts. Now, in the ancient world, you couldn't just stick a stamp on a letter and just put it in the mailbox and hope that it gets there. If you weren't royalty, if you didn't have official, you know, uh, government communication, you had to put your letter in the hands of a courier, and that courier would then, you know, get on a boat or the back of a mule or a horse, and he have to go take it and deliver it to the place where it was going. So Tychicus is the courier that Paul trusts to get this letter into the hands of the Ephesian church. And uh, he's not only going to be a letter carrier, he's going to be an ambassador bringing warm greetings and encouragement. He'll be able to give an eyewitness account of what's going on in Rome. And Paul says it twice. He says, we're doing this so that you can know our affairs. You can know what's going on with us. Now, why should they care about his affairs? Why should a church in Asia Minor care about what's going on in Italy? Well, it's because we're connected. As Christians, as churches, we're united. We are one church. That's, that's one of the main reasons we work together with other like-minded churches and presbytery. It's our business what's going on with them. It's their business what's going on with us. They need to know our affairs and there's comfort in that, and there's peace in that. These connections confirm that we're one body and we have one Savior. So Paul is fanning those flames of brotherhood by sending Tychicus, and he ends this letter with a blessing on them. He says, peace to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. And he ends it with amen. Now the reason we need to hear this and the reason we need to be constantly reminded of this this fact that we are spiritual warriors and that we have a battlefield to fight and that battlefield begins and ends in prayer and worship and our spiritual disciplines. We need to be reminded of this is because we spend our days and our weeks working with our hands and our minds and our mouths in the material world. We exert force. We exert either physical force or relational force to move things in the world and to make things happen. We work with bodily strength to transform the world around us. And that's absolutely what we're called to do. Do not stop doing that. We are called to do that. But it's very easy for us to forget about this other dimension of our existence. And the strength and the tools we have been given in that dimension to change things and to move and transform the world we aren't as used to or as comfortable with operating in that dimension. We're, we're, not, we're, we're not comfortable there. And so it's, it's so much more convenient to just discount it, to say, well, prayer really doesn't do anything. I mean, maybe it'll make you feel better for a short period of time, but I've tried prayer and you know, worship is okay, but, but it really doesn't do anything. It doesn't change anything. It doesn't mean anything. And we start to think that way without really realizing it. 
And what we're being called to remember here by the scriptures is that there are forces and there are powers and there are dominions of darkness that are ruling over a dimension of our world. And while we can't see them directly, we can see their effects. And all the physical tools and all the physical exertion in the world, our physical weapons are ineffective against those powers. We need spiritual weapons and we need spiritual armor to go to war in the spiritual realm and not laugh that off and discount it as if it were goofy or unnecessary or superstitious or, or extremist to think that way. Do you not agree with me that there is a great evil spiritual oppression in the world today? I mean, would you, would you say yes or no to that? I just wonder, are you, are you in agreement with me? There is a great evil spiritual oppression over the world. When you have massive, widespread, generational confusion over basic fundamental factors of human existence, when you can't even say who is a man or who is a woman, when that's somehow offensive to call someone a man or a woman, when, when it seems like the whole world is pressing the accelerator all the way to the floor to see how many conventions and traditions and standards and principles and morals, all based in God's word, that, that we can blow through and overturn one right after another when there's rebellion and upheaval all around you. When, when we live in this tyranny of wickedness and godlessness and insanity, and none of it has been successfully argued for, there hasn't been a global conference on how many sexes there are. Where does, there, what, on what authority do we just arrive at this stuff? And, and, and I agree, I understand, I'm just, I'm just picking out one thing there, but it's just kind of the thing that's the most insane right now, right? We haven't all gotten together and explained why all these various perversions are acceptable suddenly, and not only acceptable, but much to be celebrated. We haven't reasoned our way through it. We've just felt it. Now looking at this, this universal delusion, the only answer can be demonic deception and that God has given us over to it. That's, that's the only, only, only explanation. In Romans 1, I mean, Romans 1 is like reading a newspaper, isn't it? Romans 1 we read that God gets to a point where he turns idolaters over to their idolatry. And then, and then after that, you just have one disastrous result after another. Confusion leads to unnatural behaviors and unnatural behaviors lead to complete chaos. Foolish hearts are darkened and you give full approval to things that you know are worthy of death. That's a description of our world. I mean, every newscast ought to just start with Romans chapter one. Hey, in news today, we're being turned over to uh, darkness and, and complete rebellion. That's, that's what's going on. How do you combat this? People of God, brothers and sisters, how do you fight in this kind of world? How do you fight in this generation? How do you fight in such a way that it's very clear that your targets are not the people deceived by the demonic powers, even though many of them have willingly gone along with it. They're still being deceived. Our targets are not the people. Our targets are the powers that enslave them. And that what we're fighting for is actually to release them from the slavery that they are under. How do we fight in such a way that that's clear? What are your weapons? Because if you use worldly weapons, they have more of them. And they're way better at using them than you are. What are your weapons? There is no propaganda 
There's no media. There are no institutions at our disposal. There are no swords or guns or bombs or tanks that can destroy demon-inspired ideologies that enslave humans everywhere. There's no, there's no demon gun, right? There's no, there's no demon bomb. It's like, it would be like shooting uh, uh, Nerf bullets at a tank. That's, that's about how effective that would be to use uh, the weapons of, of flesh. So what do you have at your disposal? What do you have in your arsenal to fight secularism, Islam, atheism, abortion, this entire world of sexual and cultural revolution? Remember, when the spirits were struggling, I'm sorry, when the apostles were struggling to cast out a demon, what did Jesus say? Jesus said, this kind only comes out by prayer and fasting. There it is. Spiritual warfare against these powers happens in the arena of prayer and worship and spiritual disciplines. We are priests. We are wearing priestly armor. We are a priestly army. We are engaged in priestly warfare. Priests are an army that come into the presence of God with psalms, prayers, supplications, thanksgivings, and petitions on behalf of the world. That's what priests do. You want to talk about the priesthood of all believers? That's what it means. That's what we're talking about. That's why you are baptized and enlisted into the holy army. God is the God of hosts. What does that mean? He's the God of armies, and you're in his army. So why is the world a complete mess? Is it because the church has forgotten that worship is warfare? Is it because we've traded work in worship for entertainment? That we've traded the scriptures for pop psychology? That we've traded the sacraments for personal emotional stimulation? And then we wonder why the world isn't changing? We wonder why nothing's getting fixed? Why are we languishing and wallowing in despair? It's because the church is too lazy and fearful to pick up the weapons of war that Jesus has given us. Chief among these weapons are the prayers that we take up in the Psalms. We don't like the Psalms because they're mean. And the Psalms say mean things, right? The Psalms aren't nice. The Psalms are mean, right? I've never heard a praise chorus call on God to destroy his enemies. Have you? Have you? Can you name one? If you can name one, I want to hear it. For that matter, I haven't heard many hymns that call on God to destroy his enemies. We phase out the Psalms and we're, we forget that we're at war. We become this nursery. The church becomes this nursery where we keep everybody infantile and we keep everybody effeminate and we keep everybody feckless while the demons run rampant through the world and have their way. But God gives this book of Psalms to us and he tells us to sing it and he tells us to pray it. And this book is full of prayers for vengeance. It's full of prayers that call on God to rise up and put his enemies to flight. And there is God waiting on his church, wondering, do they see what's going on in their world? I mean, do they, do they get it? Do they know what's going on in the world? Do they care? Are, are they really interested in changing things? Until we start acting like warrior priests, dressed in armor, coming into God's sanctuary to do battle with Satan and his minions, until we start using the weapons he has given us, which those demons are defenseless against. They, they have nothing to answer when we employ the weapons we're given. Unless we live our lives saturated with prayer, calling on God to change the world, nothing is ever going to change. Nothing is ever going to be different. Do you really like the way things are? Fine. Guess what? It's easy. Don't do anything. Don't change a thing. We're good. Don't change a thing. You want to change the world? You're not happy with the way things are? Okay. Okay. Put on your armor, 
step onto the battlefield and pray without ceasing. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we ask you now that you have invested us with this armor. That's your armor. This is the armor of God. This is the armor you've given us. Now, uh, give us the courage not to sit on the bench, not to stand on the sidelines, but to jump into the fray and to do battle. And Father, we pray that you would give us uh, open, obvious victory. Encourage us by your Holy Spirit by knocking down your enemies before your church. That you would, you would loosen the stranglehold of, of demonic ideologies upon this generation that you would turn our hearts back towards you, that you would send revival to the world and reformation to your church. Correct us and strengthen us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.